Would you pray with me? <clears throat> Lord, we thank you so much for the opportunity to come before your word. Lord, we pray for humility. God, we pray that we would be listening to how the Spirit would be speaking through your word. Lord, I pray for this poor, stammering tongue that, that Lord, you would help me and guide me to be fully convinced that your word is true. And Lord, that I would speak your words for what they are. And so Lord, help us as a church, God, to have faith, to believe that the gospel is genuinely good news. We pray all this in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. What are you willing to sacrifice for? What are the goals and priorities in your life that, that you would be willing to inconvenience yourself or forego other good things in order to have? It's always fascinating to me when you watch a professional athlete win their respective sport. You get that post-game interview right after they won the Super Bowl and there's tears in their eyes and they're emotional. I imagine they're thinking back to practice after practice, hour after hour, week after week, year after year, all of the sacrifices that they put in into that moment to be able to compete at the highest level and to win the championship. I remember hearing Michael Phelps recently talk as the Olympian swimmer that he would never skip a day of being in the pool. Birthdays, Christmas, holidays, six hours a day in the pool. People often talk about the 10,000 hour rule, that in order to be an expert in anything, you need to put in 10,000 hours to be considered an expert in that one thing. We, we understand this intrinsically, that to, to have a goal, to have a priority, to be an expert comes at a cost. And perhaps we don't go as far as Michael Phelps may have or professional athletes. We all have goals. We all have priorities that we are willing to sacrifice for. We may sacrifice sleep and time with friends in order to hit our fitness goals. I should learn that from you. <laughs> we, we may sacrifice free time in order to get the promotion that we want and we maybe work extra hours at our job. We all will sacrifice something for the better goal that we have in mind. And this is exactly what we see in our passage this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. If you don't have your Bible open already, I would encourage you to turn there now to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, in which we will be looking this morning particularly at the life of the Apostle Paul and see how he was willing to forego his rights, his freedoms, his privileges to sing his goal of his brothers and sisters and unbelievers growing closer to the Lord Jesus. 
That was Paul's goal in life, to see unbelievers come to Christ and to see the body of Christ continue to remain in a healthy relationship with Christ. And for that goal, the Apostle Paul is willing to refuse and to sacrifice his God-ordained rights. The problem was, though, that the Corinthian believers were not willing to sacrifice Certainly the first Corinthians, or the first Corinthians, just the Corinthians, were a lot like us. I'm sure they would have been willing to sacrifice a lot for their own interests and for their own goals and priorities. But the problem that Paul has is, is how much are they willing to sacrifice and forego good things for others? And so if I can say it more succinctly, the, the critique that Paul is laying out in 1 Corinthians 9, is that many times the goals and the priorities we have in life don't include doing spiritual good for others. Most of our goals tend to only be self-oriented because as Paul will argue from his own life and experience that, that if doing spiritual good for others was a priority of yours, then you would be willing to sacrifice for that goal. And so a few weeks ago, we, we went over 1 Corinthians 8. And if you remember that, that passage, Paul is talking about how there are some Corinthians who, because they came out of a Gentile background, they're used to eating all of this meat offered to idols, that, that now since coming to Christ, their conscience is, is a little fuzzy about what to do with all of these issues of, of eating this meat. And there, there were some believers, the, the, the strong, quote-unquote, that were kind of maybe condescendingly causing these weaker believers to go against their conscience. Don't you know that none of that stuff matters anymore? You're making a big deal out of nothing. You need to get over yourself. You need to grow up. Meat is meat. There's only one creator, God. Stop being a party pooper. And so Paul says these people with their so-called knowledge enforcing their own knowledge upon others are really showing themselves to not actually have knowledge at all. Because the principle in 1 Corinthians 8 is simply this, that, that true knowledge of Christ always leads to this type of sacrificial care and concern for others. And so Paul ends chapter 8 with a rather bold statement. He says in chapter 8, verse 13, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble... I will never eat meat. If, if food's going to be a big problem for you, I'm happy to be a vegetarian. Lest I make my brother stumble. And so now in 1 Corinthians 9, it appears as if Paul has left that subject behind and is talking about a whole new topic. Because as we'll read here in a moment, it doesn't seem like he has anything to do with this idea of, of meat being offered to idols. But I assure you that, that what Paul is doing here is he's giving a personal example of showing them what that looks like. More or less, this bold claim that Paul gives, I mean, that sounds like a pretty big statement, Paul. Are you really willing to become a vegetarian 
And Paul says, let me show you in my own life how this principle of having sacrificial love and concern for others should look like. And and sometimes as a preacher, I'm always being told that when I give personal examples, I should never make myself the hero in the story. Make Christ the hero. Yes, amen, all true. If I give you a story of myself, usually it's how I didn't do it right. Paul here, though, says no. Look at my example as I follow Christ, which is why in chapter 11, verse 1, as he follows up this whole section about me being offered to idols, he says, be imitators of me as I follow Christ. And so I would argue that that Paul's point here then in chapter 9 is that serving the body of Christ stands above our personal rights and freedoms. That's the point he's trying to drive home in. It's very similar to the point he was making in chapter 8, but but now he's trying to give us some flesh and bones. What does this actually look like? If I'm going to have sacrificial love and concern for my brothers and sisters in Christ, how should that take shape? And that's what Paul wants to show us here. Because again and again and again, here is the mission of the Apostle Paul. He is trying to help us see how the gospel of Jesus Christ namely Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, how it changes everything in our life now. It changes the way in which we look at what, what is true wisdom. It changes the way we look at the body of Christ, the church. It, it changes the way we look at sexuality and, and how we forgive one another. It, the, the gospel should orient everything about us, including our very own rights and freedoms. And that's what Paul is trying to help us see is how as when we when we believe in Jesus it's not simply a once upon a time I said a prayer I'm a Christian. To be a Christian is is a daily believing and repenting in the gospel. And so in this particular passage Paul wants us to see how the gospel leads the body of Christ to being people who understand that serving the body should always be priority number one over my own rights and freedoms. And so going through this passage, most of chapter 9, we'll be going through verse 23. Paul here, he's giving a personal example of what this should practically look like. And so Paul gives us three ways of what it looks like to serve the body above our own personal rights and freedoms. And so first, first way, what does this look like? Well, it looks like at times... We refuse the rights that we have. So what does it look like to have sacrificial love and concern for others? It means at times we refuse our own rights. Let's consider the passage now, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 1. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? 
Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruits? Or who tends a flock without gathering some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless. We have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. In this section, Paul uses 16 rhetorical questions and what I would say five mini arguments to show and to make claim that he has a right to be paid as a minister of the gospel. And his point in, in, in making this, this claim to his right is to say, I have, however, chosen not to claim this right. So, so Paul's argument in this section is really him showing, I have a right. My right is that I should be, be able to be paid as an apostle. But I refuse that right. So this is one of these passages where we also learn a lot of secondary things about the nature of our faith the nature of an apostle, the nature of ministerial pay. And we'll talk about those briefly, but I also want to keep in our minds that the central argument that Paul is making. He is making a long, convoluted, layered argument as to why he has the right to be paid, but yet refuses it. And so Paul begins this argument by, by sort of defending his apostleship, by defending, I, I'm an, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Now, some think that people... Uh, that, that Paul is trying to, this whole chapter, just talk about defending his apostleship. I think it's a weak argument because really what Paul is doing, he's setting up the reason why he has the right to be paid as an apostle. But before he can make the argument of why he should get paid, he has to lay the foundation that he, in fact, is an apostle. Now, what's interesting here is he adds kind of a qualification that was needed in order to be an apostle. Do you see that right there in verse 1? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Now, certainly there were a lot of people who saw the resurrected Christ. And not all of them were apostles. But Paul here would also say in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the very first verse, he says, you know, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle. But, but Paul here, I, I think, is kind of saying that, that to be an apostle... You both need to have the calling and, as he says here, to be an eyewitness of the resurrection. Now, I, I bring this up briefly because 
still to this day, there are those who teach that the gift of, the, of an apostle still exists. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit more when we get into the spiritual gifts discussion in chapter 12 and 14. So I'm not just going to kind of leave a hanging chat out there. Okay, we'll get to it eventually. But at the very least, I do want to make a point that the type of gift of apostleship that we see in the New Testament has to be, by definition, different than if that gift still exists today. So, so Paul here is saying, I, I'm free. I'm an apostle. I've seen Christ. I am someone who, if you would look at the fruit of my life, you, Corinthians, as he would say in 2 Corinthians, you're the, the seal, you're the, you're the fruits of me being an apostle. And so after establishing that defense, you could say in verses 1 through 3, Paul now kind of launches five mini-arguments, and I'm going to go through these very briefly, so, so don't get mad at me, because it's a long, convoluted point to make a simple point of why he should get paid. First argument we see here in verses three through six, uh, four, 4 through 6, he kind of points to the other apostles. He says, aren't I, just like the other apostles, able to have a wife and to be able to provide for that wife? Am I not also able to eat and drink? Verse 6, or is it only Barnabas and I who have the right to refrain from working for a living? And so what's interesting is that Paul here quotes that Jesus' brothers, they all have believing wives. Cephas, the, you know, the head of the church at the time, Peter, he has a wife. They all have the right to receive compensation to support their families, to do this gospel ministry. If those apostles can get paid, why shouldn't him and Barnabas be able to get paid? So more than this, though, Paul kind of gives what I would say is the argument of common sense. He, he pulls three metaphors from real life in verse 7, right? He talks about what soldier serves at his own expense? Who, who signs up for the army for free? Or, or who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? How many of you plant gardens and would never enjoy the carrots in your salad? Or how many of you waste so much money, I don't want to say waste, but spend $200 on vegetables that you could have gotten for $30 at the grocery store? Right? More than this, who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Which shepherd doesn't have some benefit from the fold of his flock? So Paul is saying, if the other apostles can get paid, if in normal, real-world situations, those who serve, who plant, who tend, all enjoy the fruit of their labor, how come not us? And so argument three is maybe the longest argument where he, he quotes from the Old Testament. If you notice in verse 8, he says from the written law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Now, Paul will use the same illustration in 1 Timothy chapter 5, but this is maybe the most bizarre maybe part of the argument because if you read Deuteronomy 25 in context and, and, and you, you kind of go through the whole chapter, you would think how in the world does he take Deuteronomy 25 and apply it to why pastors and missionaries should be paid? It makes no sense, Right? But, but he goes on, he asks this question. He says, is it for oxen that God is concerned? Now, reading that at first glance, I know some of the animal lovers would have been like, hey, I didn't, that wasn't cool. God, God loves the animals. You're right, indeed. God does love the animals. And so to kind of explain a little bit of the nature of this command, in the law of Moses, 
What, what was being commanded was that during harvest season, they'd have this big threshing floor. They would throw out all the, the wheat and the grain, and the, and the bulls would go and walk on it. It would crush the heads and, and out pop, you know, the grain. And the oxen, as they are threshing, would eat some of the grain. But some of the, the farmers who were, who were greedy, who wanted to have as much harvest as they could, they would put a muzzle over the oxen's mouth so they couldn't eat any of the grain. And the Lord said, that is wrong. The, the animal should be able to enjoy some of the fruit of its labor. And if it's working hard, it should enjoy some of, of what it's doing. And, and so what Paul is saying is an argument of, of, of lesser to greater. If God cares about the bulls, how much more does he actually care about us? That God doesn't expect his ministers to work and to labor at teaching and preaching and not receive some of the fruit of their labor. And so Paul here, he kind of just uses again the illustrations of, of Scripture that, that, that those who harvest, they, those who sow, they, they expect some kind of reaping. And so verse 11, he says, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? So again, all, all pretty simple examples so far to his argument as to why those who preach the gospel should get paid. But look what he says here in verse 12. If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Now what I think Paul has in mind right here in sharp focus was the common practice of patronage in ancient Corinth. You see, the name of the game was, for any traveling speaker, or usually it would be a philosopher, they would come into a town and they'd find a patron, someone who would financially support them, someone who was kind of backing them. And if that speaker or that philosopher spoke very well and very eloquently, people would start following them. They'd be social media famous. They would, they would get a, a gathering, a following. But if you were one of those people who backed them, if you were a patron of this person, it sort of came with strings attached. And so if I met a traveling philosopher and he didn't have a big following and I footed the bill for him to live there for a month and he got really popular and everyone was talking about this person, I would go up to this person and say, hey, Monday night and Tuesday night, you're going to be at my house, and I'm going to invite my boss, I'm going to invite my friends and my neighbors, and because I know you, that's going to make me kind of rise up the social ladder. And so Paul said, when I came to Corinth, I'm not playing that game. When I come preaching the gospel, I am not doing it with strings attached, because all that would do would conflict with the message of Christ. So Paul says, I, I refuse to put any obstacle in the way of someone hearing Christ. I'm not going to preach in such a way that there's going to be people who have strings attached to me. And so more than that, that was the third argument. He gives two more briefly. In verse 13, he says, Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. So now he points to, to Judaism and to see that the pattern established in the Old Testament that those who did ministerial duties in the temple received their pay from what was given to the temple. 
And so, so more than this, Paul is saying you have intrinsic justice from the law. You have an established precedent. You have common language. You have what the other apostles are doing. And lastly, the cherry on top, Paul quotes from Jesus himself. And so in verse 14, he says, In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. And so in Luke chapter 10, verse 7, as Jesus was sending out his disciples, he tells them, And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. So Paul has been thorough. He has layered this argument of this right that ministers, pastors, and missionaries of the gospel have the right to be financially compensated. But yet in verse 15, here's what Paul says. But I have made no use of any of these rights. Nor is Paul trying to employ a clever trick of reverse psychology of kind of letting them know, hey, by the way, you know, you haven't really paid me, but it's okay. I don't really need to get paid. And, you know, trying to force a conversation. And so here's what Paul says, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. He's not trying to trick them. He's saying, I have a rightful claim. Here's all the arguments. I haven't taken it. That's, that's Paul's argument. Now, Paul here spends a lot of time talking about why pastors and missionaries should get paid. And I think there, there's a question that maybe goes through our head. Well, if Paul didn't take pay, does, you guys are already, you're already tracking, right? Does that mean that you shouldn't get paid? I think, I think it'd be wise for us to, to have a, a quick excursion over here to talk about ministerial compensation and about what we do here at Hope. So I have a number of thoughts here. First, I just want to say how grateful I am for the grace of God in all of your lives, for how generous this church is in giving year after year. It is such a delight as a pastor to know that there are members who care about the work of the gospel here at Hope Community Church that every month they give. It's, it's incredible to me every time I get that paycheck that I get paid to do this. It is a joy of mine to being one of your pastors. And I, and I truly mean this when I say it, and I'll even speak for Carl and Chris, that if we could do it for free, we would. This is not something we did because we wanted to make a lot of money. We love serving you as one of your pastors. So thank you. But this idea of thinking about whether or not pastors should get paid, and, and certainly there are some small fringe movements and denominations that kind of push and advocate that pastors should be bivocational, that they should be all like Paul. Paul was a tent maker, kind of a lowly occupation. That's how he made his financial money. And he would kind of pastor and missionary and church plant on the side. And again, I think if this is required of people, I think it's wrong. But if someone is willing to do that, I think that's great. I think if, if you're able to not take a paycheck, wonderful. I still don't think it's ideal, though, for this reason. And I'll use another illustration in the world. Imagine that you need brain surgery tomorrow. And the surgeon comes into the room, and he's chugging down caffeine, and he can barely keep his eyes awake. He says, oh, I've been working three jobs to make ends meet, but I, but I think I can do this operation just fine. You wouldn't want your brain surgeon to be strung out and overbooked and overtired before he serves on you. 
And in the same way, I don't think churches want their pastors to be strung out and then having to worry about how to pay the mortgage and how to feed their kids and, and, and how to save for retirement and pay for their kids' colleges. I think the pattern that Paul even establishes in 1 Timothy 5 is that those who labor and teach should get paid. So what we see elsewhere in the New Testament, we even see from Jesus that the arguments that Paul just gave as to why pastors and missionaries should get paid. But the second reason why I don't think we should necessarily be like Paul here is because Paul was uniquely different. And we'll see this a little bit in our second point, that Paul did not choose ministry voluntarily. He was divinely commissioned and called, which is why you'll get some of that language, which we'll explain in a minute, in verse 16, where he says, Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. As much as we want to take those words and apply them to ourselves, I do think Paul's situation is a little different than us. And so I, I do think that it is, it is good and is right for those who preach the gospel full time to make their living from the gospel. So in, in many ways, my goal as a pastor is I hope that you see paying your pastors as a good investment, that this is something that benefits you spiritually, that this will affect you for all of eternity. You know, I know sometimes when we buy insurance, it feels kind of like a bad taste in our mouth. It's expensive. We don't get much use out of it. But, but technically, we kind of have to get insurance. It's just one of those things that you need. I, I hope that supporting missionaries and pastors doesn't feel like that. Where we begrudgingly give. I, technically, we have to, but I don't get much use out of it. I am eternally grateful that my church, as a kid, paid for a full-time youth pastor. And that man spent so much time with me. Hour after hour after hour. Men who took time out of their evenings, their mornings, to come and disciple me, to give me premarital counseling, to take my phone call when I'm struggling with a doubt. That they would not have otherwise been able to do if they had to go work full time. And so I hope it's a good investment. But I also need to add a little bit here, too, that Paul here is saying that, yes, pastors and missionaries have the right to get paid. They do not have the right to be rich. I cannot more quickly condemn the prosperity gospel ministers who think that they are showing how God has so richly blessed them by flaunting their mansions and their private jets and their consumer goods. No, what they are flaunting is how they don't know God. And how they are so preoccupied with their self and their own glory and comfort that they are not willing to sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. It is not a call to be rich. It is a call to be fairly compensated. Because I also don't believe that it's a call to poverty neither. In fact, maybe the best illustration I have is if you imagine there's 10 families in a church and they had no other expenses. And they had only one expense of paying one pastor. If those 10 families each gave 10% of their income to paying that one pastor, that pastor would be right in the middle, not at the top and not at the bottom. And so here at Hope Community Church, none of the pastors set our own salaries. It is the job of the elders with other members and with our financial treasurer to look at helpful guides and compensation charts of other nonprofits and other churches, and they take into a factor of a lot of considerations about what compensation looks like. 
And I am grateful that we are also a congregational church in which you, the congregation, votes to approve the budget every year. And so with all the stories we hear of pastors manipulating and extorting money out of their members, I assure you that this church, we want to be honoring to God with the stewardship that we've been given through the tithes and offerings of the members of Hope Community Church. And I also just want to encourage you, if you ever have questions or concerns, to talk to your elders. More than this, months ahead of this meeting, every December we have a financial meeting in which we go through the budget, line by line, to be as open and transparent as possible. The problem is, is like two people come every year. I don't know if that's a problem of like a good problem that the people just so trust us or a problem that people are just checked out. So I'd encourage you, when you hear that announcement, come. Be active in how we set the budget of our church. It's very uncomfortable talking about money, so I'm glad this point is over. (laughs) Back to Paul's main argument. The point is, we all have rights. But for the sake of others, at times we need to refuse those rights. Ministerial compensation doesn't apply to 99.5% of the people in this room. But how about our comfort, the right to our comfort? Are you willing to refuse your right to being comfortable on a Sunday morning and talk to someone maybe you don't know? Or to go greet someone who's new to the church? Or to make a new friend or relationship with someone in the church who you you haven't met with yet? Are you willing to refuse your right to be with your friends? Students, when you go to a Sunday night youth group and you're so excited to be with your friends and it's been a long week and, you know, you get back to all the inside jokes and hanging out, but you look over your shoulder and you see someone who's new. They're not really talking to anyone. You absolutely have a right to continue talking to your friends. But are you willing to lay that down for a moment? To go bring that person in? How many of us here in this room are we willing to refuse our right to be served and instead go serve the little ones in children's church? We always need more children's church leaders and teachers and volunteers. Will we refuse our right to come to church late and leave early? Refuse our right of picking and choosing the parts of church that we like and ignoring the parts that we don't like. Rather, we can learn to embrace the godly leadership that God has given us and commit to a local church. We can refuse to drink alcohol in social settings if we know that someone may be uncomfortable with it. These are all just a few small examples. But how about you? Where might you hold on a little too tightly to to your comfort, to your rights, to your privileges? And where you can maybe lay them down at times for a moment for the well-being of the body of Christ, helping others grow spiritually. That's what it looks like to be sacrificially loving and being concerned for others is that at times we lay down what we have the right to in order to help others. 
And so to, to think about this even more, Paul would go on to our second point to talk about the goals that we have. And, and I think one of the things we're going to see in these few verses is how oftentimes our goals are not big enough. If our goals do not lead us to actually being sacrificial for others, we might need bigger goals. So consider with me now in, verse, in the middle of verse 15, Paul says, For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with the stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my rights in the gospel. Now, Paul here, he reiterates his conviction of not getting paid for ministerial duties, for, for preaching the gospel. And, and really, I think these couple of verses give us an inside view of what makes the Apostle Paul tick, what, what makes Apostle, the Apostle Paul more or less the Apostle Paul. And so he says something very unique in verse 16. If you look at it, he says, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no grounds for boasting. So in essence, what Paul is saying, me just simply preaching about Christ and calling others, to that, that's like, that's an automatic. That's assumed for me. That, that's not something I even get the choice to do. That, that's just something that I have to do. And again, this is what I was saying earlier. Paul here is a little unique compared to any modern day pastor or missionary. Because Paul did not voluntarily choose to preach the gospel. If you remember Paul's conversion experience, is that Paul, before he became a Christian, was a persecutor of Christians. Now, on his way to Damascus to kill Christians, the Lord Jesus appears to him, saves him, and commissions him to go and preach the gospel to the Gentiles. So, so Paul here is, I, I am, in many ways, I'm a slave to Christ. This has been a divine apostolic appointment for me to preach Christ. And so if you remember the the, the, the the parable that Jesus gives in Matthew 25, the parable of the talents, that a master gives his, his, his servants, you know, five talents, two talents, one talents, and he comes back, and there's the one servant who does nothing. And that servant says, you wicked and slothful servants. So, so Paul kind of, in many ways, understands that apostolic stewardship. is like, I, I, I just have to. In fact, if I don't preach the gospel, woe to me. Which is why he says, necessity is laid on me. See, Paul did not become a Christian and then go to the drawing board and say, well, I could be an engineer, I could be a painter, I guess tent maker, maybe I'll be a missionary. No, he was radically converted to Christ and told, you will go and preach. So that's why he says, that's not my reward. That's just the, the bare minimum for me is preaching. So what is my reward? Verse 17, for if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I'm still entrusted with the stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge. Paul's reward is that his very own life and ministry can be both a model and be a herald of the gospel of grace. 
See, Paul understands that by him not charging any financial compensation, not only does he get to preach the gospel, is that he gets to model the gospel. To say, to say it more simply, Paul's boast, Paul's goal is to boast in Christ. It is to make much of Christ. By him not being able to re- receive any payment, Paul, in essence, is saying, I get to be like Jesus. And what did Jesus do? Jesus laid down his rights and became a servant to all. So Paul says, here's my true reward, is that I get to reflect the love and the grace and the mercy that Christ has had towards me to you. That is Paul's goal. Paul did not become a missionary because he wanted to see the success of of many churches planted. He did not preach Christ to boost up his own self-esteem. He preached Christ because Christ had saved him. Christ had died for him. Christ had miraculously shown up to him at the the Damascus Road. And Paul wanted everything in his life to be about Christ. And when that was his goal, the fruit of it was, I am happy to lay down anything that I can to make much of Christ for you. You see, like I said in the introduction, we are all willing at times to sacrifice for our goals. But sometimes our goals are too small. Please please hear me correctly. I I don't think it's wrong to have a goal to, to grow your business. It's not wrong to have a goal to have better relationships or to be thinner. But if your goals never actually lead you to wanting to make Christ known, if your goal never requires you to sacrifice for others, your goals may be too small. Paul here wants people to be about Christ. And so how do we reevaluate our goals? Is, is, Is my job to sit here and to tell you how selfish you are? And just pour a bunch of guilt. Paul here knows that the only way to help Christians grow in their God-centered, Christ-glorifying goals is to remember Christ. It is to drink deeply and richly from the gospel again and again. The answer to all of our spiritual malaise, to all of our spiritual laziness, The answer to all of our spiritual problems is always more of Christ. The answer of us having a bigger God-centered, Christ-glorifying goal is to remember what Christ has done for you. That he came into this world, that he lived a perfect life. That he went to the cross and he he became a substitute, a, a sacrifice for all of your sins It's it's to remember that Christ's mercy soars above all of your sins. It's to remember that Christ's grace was sufficient yesterday, that his his grace is sufficient today, that his grace will be sufficient tomorrow. It's to remember that Christ is coming again to judge the living and the dead. It's to remember that we have the hope of eternal life and the promise of resurrection. It's to remember that God actually, truly does love you. That he has your good in mind. 
You see, to, to drink again from word and from sacrament, the, the good news of the gospel, it, it takes our focus off of the here and now. It makes our perspective heavenward. And in doing so, it makes our relationship with others an opportunity to make much of Christ. And so if you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, oh, my one goal for you is to know just how much God loves you in Christ. That the way that you can respond to Jesus is not by thinking what you can sacrifice for him. Because let me tell you, no amount of sacrifice on your part can make you right with God. No amount of religious coming to services or praying or reading a religious textbook will make you right with God. The only thing that can make you right with God is believing that Jesus' sacrifice of dying on the cross for your sins can make you one with God. Believing in that message and turning from your sins, that that is how you respond to Jesus, by believing that what he has done is enough for you. And for those of us who are Christians, I pray that we remember again and again the goodness of the good news of Jesus Christ. That it would change our life, our goals, that our boast, our reward would to see Jesus Christ glorified. And so seeing Paul's example of modeling Christ should cause all of us in this room to re-examine our goals. Again, I'm not telling you you can't have other secondary goals in life. I have goals. But we also need to examine our lives. Am I willing to sacrifice for others? Am I willing to do good for the sake of the brethren? And if there isn't a lot of sacrifice, we may need to re-examine how big our goals are. And lastly, and more briefly, Paul shows us the type of sacrificial service. What that looks like, practically speaking, is that we become a servant to all. When you look down at verse 19, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I become as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings." And so even though Paul is free, Paul says, I willfully, voluntarily choose to become a slave to all. Translations in English always, you know, soften that word a little bit to servants. But Paul is saying, I have made myself a slave to others. And if you'll notice, Paul here is really good at contextualizing. That if his audience is Jewish, he goes Jewish. If they are law observant, he lives that way. Even though Paul says he is free of the law. If, if they are Gentiles and completely unaware of kosher laws, Paul says that's great too. What Paul is willing to do is forego personal preferences. That he's okay if the church doesn't always play hymns. He's also okay if they play light and fluffy contemporary music. 
Paul is willing to forego personal preferences to see the spiritual well-being of others. And so just, just notice with me just how much he uses this word when, right? I think in just these couple of verses, he uses the word win five times. In verse 19, that I may win more of them. Verse 20, to win Jews, right? End of verse 20, that I may win those under the law. Verse 21, that I might win those outside the law. Verse 22, that I might win the weak. And lastly, in verse 22, that I might save some. Paul here is singularly focused on helping others become Christians and helping believers grow as Christians. And so Paul kind of gives us one of the most famous verses in all of 1 Corinthians here. In verse 22, Paul says, I have become all things to all people that I might by all means save some. This is a wonderful verse that just shows how much Paul was willing to sacrifice. At the same time, I think this verse, I often refer to it as a pragmatist favorite verse. Pragmatism, although helpful at times, is really the the idea or the principle that what we should do in ministry is, is what works. The first impulse and instinct of a pragmatist is to think, practically speaking, what should we be doing in our worship service? What gets people in the doors? A few years ago when Mark Zuckerberg was talking about the metaverse, I'm not sure if you know what that is, but... I watched someone talk about whether or not we should do church in the metaverse. And so their idea was people would put on their little headsets and they would go in this virtual world and they would have church. And there was this little online debate about whether this should happen. And, and those who were for it, guess which verse they quoted? I have become all things to all people that by all means, including doing church in the metaverse, I might save some. Paul here is saying that he is willing to contextualize preferences, rights, freedoms in order to help the spiritual well-being of others. What Paul is not saying is that he's willing to forego his principles and his theological convictions of preaching the gospel. So as much as we want to try to use this verse to to make the point that the means justify the end, and that has been a long discussion in American Christianity you know, let's have the bounce houses. Let's have the movies and the sermons. Let's have all of these programs. And look, as long as we get people to actually come in, it's working. It justifies the end. That is not true. And that is not biblical. We need to be content with the means of grace that God has given us to do the work of ministry. Sorry, that was a little tangent, but I felt that was very important. But here is Paul's point here. Paul is so concerned with the well-being of others spiritually that he wants to habitually and ritually give up things that are important to him in order to see others grow. J.C. Ryle, in his book on holiness, has a very interesting observation. I think he's even thinking about this passage. J.C. Ryle, in this particular chapter, is giving marks of what does it look like to actually grow as a Christian? If someone is growing in the grace of Christ, that, that should take an obvious and evidential shape. And so he gives a number of marks. What does it look like for someone to actually be growing in the Christian religion? And here's what J.C. Ryle says. One mark of growth in grace is increased zeal and diligence in trying to do good to souls. 
the man who is really growing will take greater interest in the salvation of sinners every year. Missions at home and abroad, efforts of every kind to spread the gospel, attempts of any sort to increase religious light and diminish religious darkness. All these things will be, every year, have a greater place in his attention. He will not become weary in well-doing because he does not see every effort succeed. He will not care less for the progress of Christ's cause on earth as he grows older, though he will learn to expect less. He will just work on whatever the result may be, giving, praying, preaching, speaking, visiting, according to his position, and to count his work its own reward. One of the surest marks of spiritual decline, says J.C. Ryle, is decreased interest about the souls of others and the growth of Christ's kingdom. Would anyone know whether he is growing in grace? Then let him look for increased concern about the salvation of souls. That's what Paul cared about. Instead of being a primarily spiritual consumer, Paul says, I want to be a spiritual provider. If I'm not evangelizing someone, I'm helping disciple them. So Jesus, in Mark 10, 45, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, friends, we cannot be like Jesus in giving our lives as a ransom for many. We cannot make atonement for our own sins nor for the sins of, of anyone else, but we can follow Jesus' model of voluntary servanthood. That, that's the point of this passage, voluntary servanthood. Paul understands that he is not under the Old Testament religious law. Those ceremonial ritual laws don't apply to him. Circumcision means nothing. He doesn't have to eat kosher. But Paul understands this, that he is under the law of Christ. And what is the law of Christ? The law of Christ is to recognize that I did not come to be served, but to serve others. This is my prayer for our church. That when we come into this room, when we gather together, whether in as a whole church or in small little different groups, that we would understand that we are to live under this law of Christ at times recognizing that my own personal preferences, comforts, rights, they don't have the last word. They don't rule the day. What rules the day when I'm sitting with one of you at a coffee shop is how is this person doing? Lord, how can I pray for this person? How can I encourage them? How can I build them up? And so I pray here at Hope Community Church as a collective of individual members that we would be eager to pray for one another during the week. That we learn to open up our homes and be hospitable to one another. That at times we'd be willing to be inconvenienced. That we would always remember how Christ chose to serve us that we may also learn to be voluntary servants of others. And so as I pose in the beginning, I'll pose at the end. 
what are you willing to sacrifice for? What are the goals and priorities in your life that you are willing to be inconvenienced for or forgo other good things in order to have? My encouragement to you is that you would take time this afternoon. Maybe as you drive home from church, discuss with the person you came with. What are those rights and freedoms that you maybe hold on to a little too tightly? Talk to the Lord about this. And remember, we are not called to live under ceremonial or the civil laws of the Old Testament, but we do live under the law of Christ. And so may like Paul, who like Jesus, for the sake of the gospel, be a church that is willing to serve the body above our own personal rights and freedoms by refusing at times our rights, by re-examining our goals, and by remaining a servant to all. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us to again and again remember your great sacrifice on the cross. Thank you, Lord, for your spilled blood. Thank you for your grace and your mercy and how it's abundance deep and wide. And so, Father, I pray as a church that we would be people who are marked by this type of radical, self-sacrificial love. Lord, it's hard and it can be very uneasy at times to talk to people we don't know. Discipleship is messy. Life is messy. But Lord, help us to have faith that it is better to give than to receive. And so, O oh Spirit of Christ, we pray that through your word you would continually make us more like the Lord Jesus. Give us faith to believe these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.